What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It is Friday, May 27th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with Dan Walsh, filling in for Nick today. Dan, what's going on, man? Hey, yo, happy and honored and privileged to be here, as always. Sad to be without the Nickster, but you know, the show <laughs> must go on. The show must go on. Somebody's got to steer this <laughs> ship while he's out living the time of his life. So beautiful. <laughs> well, we are also honored to have you back. Uh, you'd be happy to know that when I ran my half last weekend, I kept the Val Alta on me at all times. Really? Used wow. it a couple times. It was super humid, and That's uh, amazing. yeah, that thing got quite a bit of use. Yeah, you had quite a weekend for May. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> it was a long day. It was humid, but hey, we finished. Got the medal. Beautiful. All right, let's get into this show. Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. And with that, let's get into some quick hits. The first one is from the German publication Deutschwell. It's titled, Four EU Countries Pledge Tenfold Rise in North Sea Wind Power. Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Denmark plan to help achieve the European Union's climate goals by building 150 gigawatts of offshore wind capacity in the North Sea by 2050. The plan comes while Europe is trying to cut short-term reliance on Russian oil due to Putin's war in Ukraine. The four countries' plan is to approach this cooperatively so that the offshore wind farms serve as a, quote, truly European power plant with a joint approach to development, financing, and electricity distribution. Like Dan mentioned in the headline, this would increase wind capacity by 10 times, as the EU currently has about 16 gigawatts currently installed. Yeah, that is an incredible amount. What an ambitious project. What great news. I wonder if this was in the works like for a little bit and or if it just like came together because that is a massive project. And I feel like wind power is great, especially in that region of the world, because I don't know how reliable solar would be up there. I haven't been there myself, but I hear it's a little foggy pretty often. Also something else I wanted to mention is the article mentioned, quote, the ambition is also to use the green power to make hydrogen and green fuels for heavy industries and transportation that cannot easily be electrified and uh, one of the examples that came to mind was the fertilizer production because that requires uh, hydrogen that they typically would get from uh, natural gas which I'm assuming most of which comes from Russia and mm -hmm. so uh, yeah that's a great industry and one that's tough to decarbonize yeah so a couple things you brought up there I think for sure getting involved with you know green power to make hydrogen and green fuels is going to be really, really important development because we always talk about how a lot of these processes, you know, it's great to have solar and wind, but in an area like this where, like you said, it's cloudy a lot, wind is going to be much more effective. And even with that, it's tough to get 100% of your energy from wind. So to use this power to make 
green hydrogen and green fuels. It's kind of just taking a problem, solving part of it, and then using the other part of that to solve a separate problem. So yeah, no, really cool. Yeah, it seems like they're really planning this well. Yeah. And another thing you mentioned about, I wonder how far along this was. You know, did this just spring up? Yeah. I'm curious about that too. Yeah, because that's a, an ambitious project. Like you said, it's doubling nearly the uh, the current capacity. It's ten times the current capacity. Oh yeah, yeah, ten times yeah. the current capacity. <laughs> And then uh, oh, I forgot the exact number, but on the article, yeah, it was saying like their ambitions by 2050. It makes these numbers look small. Yes. So that's that was their plan uh, by 2050 is to have 300 gigawatts of offshore wind. Wow. So here they're kind of creating a framework where half of that is going to be constructed between these four countries alone. Uh, so, look, that's a huge step in the right direction to help Europe achieve energy independence, like we mentioned and get closer to 100% renewable energy. Yeah, that's amazing. I wonder how much space this takes up. Yeah, that would be something we could have looked into, but hey, if you're listening and you're curious, check it out. I mean, they, <laughs> they did the calculations, they would know, so. Yeah. But yeah, this is a cool plan, and I'm excited to see you know where it goes and how long this actually takes to get up and running. And you know, hopefully by 2050, that 300 gigawatts goal is, we're looking back at that and being like, what were we thinking? We easily hit 500. Light work. <laughs> yeah. The next one is titled Amazon shareholders vote on resolution to require the company to address its colossal plastic problem by Globe Newswire and published by the Associated Press. On Wednesday of this week, Amazon held its annual meeting where shareholders voted on a resolution that could require the company to issue a report about how Amazon could reduce its plastic packaging that contributes to plastic pollution. Dan and I are recording this on Tuesday, so we don't know how this went yet. And here's what it could mean if it passes, because even if this doesn't pass, it's good to highlight how much of a plastic problem Amazon has already, seeing as many of us are Amazon users. The report would quantify the amount of plastic packaging used by the company, and 35.5% of Amazon shareholders supported a similar resolution last year. Oceana, a group dedicated to protecting the world's oceans, released a report in December 2021 that estimated Amazon produced 599 million pounds of plastic packaging waste in 2020 which was up 29% from their 2019 estimate. A lot of that's probably due to people shopping online more in 2020. But look, 599 pounds of waste is an insane amount regardless of the reason or the circumstances. And yeah, I mean, people shopping online in 2020 makes sense because we couldn't really go into a lot of stores in you know the beginning months of the year. Absolutely. This article points out that studies have found 55% of seabirds, 70% of marine mammals, and 100% of sea turtles have either ingested or become entangled in plastic. Then you have to remember how things like plastic work their way up the food chain and eventually get into every single living organism. The plastic problem truly is a crisis at this point, and I don't use that term lightly. Yeah, no, it's prevalent everywhere. Amazon also mostly uses plastic film, which is one of the deadliest forms of plastic for marine life. It's difficult to recycle and not accepted by most curbside recycling programs. Yeah, and Amazon doesn't currently report on its own plastic use and is, unsurprisingly, asking shareholders to vote against this proposal. Investors can't see Amazon's ESG risk exposure without knowing the details 
of their plastic data. For anyone unaware, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, and it's basically about investing with companies that align with your own views. Um, even with that, there are ways to prop up your ESG score, so don't take a high score as, wow, that company really cares about the environment. Always do your research when you can, and in this case, we can't because Amazon does not publish its plastic data. Oceana sent a letter to Amazon shareholders with five reasons to support the resolution and tried to win support by running its Amazon Less Plastic Please campaign. Yeah, I mean, something like this is really important just because when you think of the magnitude of how much plastic is produced by the largest company in the world, you know, how many people are using Amazon and every time someone gets a package, how much plastic is in that one package? And then you think of how many packages per day are shipped out. And when all of this plastic isn't recycled, it's really easy to see where that almost 600 million pounds of plastic waste comes from. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And it seems to me that like this would be a perfect opportunity for like a very small portion of Amazon, whatever, if they don't want to do it themselves or like outsource it, fund a college, like something. But to do research on like those like compostable packages or like mm -hmm. all that stuff, because it's out there. I mean, Valor Alta, we use the compostable packages. I'm sure they could and they ship out enough packages where they could reduce the cost to basically probably the same as what they're paying yeah. themselves because they, they are the great majority of package users. So I'm shocked. I mean, maybe they do. I didn't look into it, but like that they don't research that because that's kind of almost what they sell. Like they don't really sell like the products on Amazon so much as like other people are selling through Amazon. Like yeah. they're selling like the boxes and the bags. Like that's like the the critical elements of their business. Every single package that goes through it is either in a cardboard box or plastic bag. So it's like very central to their business. That's why I'm shocked that there's not more experimentation knowing that they are so like data driven and like testing and everything. So yeah. I'm just shocked to see that there isn't more innovation from them on this topic. Yeah, and it's interesting too, because like you brought up, there are alternatives out there. I mean, I had uh, a water this weekend that was given out to the sponsors, I'm sorry, that was given out by the sponsors of the race, and it was in a paper carton, and what I thought was a plastic lid had printed on it, plant-based lid. So, you know, it felt like plastic, it looked like plastic, it was made entirely of plants. So the alternatives are out there, it's just a matter of actually using them. And for a company that claims to, you know, take pride in its environmental impact. I mean, Jeff Bezos is the owner of Climate yeah. Pledge Arena out in Seattle, where the entire building is carbon neutral. And, you know, mm -hmm. like they, they do good things for the environment, but then overlook the really obvious elephant in the room, which is how much plastic they're using. So I hope that by the time this episode comes out, mm -hmm. this resolution passed. And if it didn't, I hope that this is something that next year is back yeah, in there. Yeah, keep swinging at it. Yeah, just keep going and keep mobilizing and up the marketing and campaigning until eventually this passes and a company like Amazon has to really, really make this commitment. All right, our next quick hit is from CNBC where Phil LeBeau writes, EV battery cost could spike 22% by 2026 as raw material shortages drag on. 
between 2023 and 2026, electric vehicle batteries are projected to rise up to $138 per kilowatt hour. For reference, they are currently around $128 per kilowatt hour and are projected to be around $110 per kilowatt hour by this time next year. The price is then expected to decline through 2031 to as low as $90 per kilowatt hour, according to eSource, a research firm from Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, and this is because EV demand is growing and raw materials needed to make the battery cells is limited. One of the materials that's highlighted in the article is lithium, which is already facing a shortage and increasing demand for EVs is going to mean we need much more lithium. This also means the cost of EVs will likely increase by around $1,500 to $3,000 per vehicle, which is why eSource predicts that EV sales by 2026 will still increase, but not by as much as they had originally predicted. Ford CEO Jim Farley said that more permitting for lithium mining is needed to address the shortage so that the government and private sector can work together to produce more EVs at lower cost. It's an interesting one because, you know, we need lithium to produce EVs, which create less greenhouse gases than internal combustion engine cars. But lithium is a natural resource that's limited and extracting it can be environmentally damaging if done incorrectly. So the key here for me is to mine ethically while we're trying to make these cars that should be better for the environment. No, absolutely. I completely agree. EVs aren't currently carbon free. And that's something that I really want to hammer home here because when you talk about how you're charging them, it's all reliant on where that charger is getting its power from. When you're talking about where they're built, it's reliant on where that factory is getting its power from. But as more renewable energy capacity is added to the grid, EVs could in theory become carbon free. They're an exciting part of the future to me and I do hope to own one, but you know, now I know that I'm not gonna do that until uh, that cost <laughs> comes back down after 2026. And for right now, I am loving the no car life. Yeah, man, it's brutal out there right now. If these gas prices stay where there are, there's going to be even more demand. I don't even know what the gas prices are uh, right now because I'm is, a public transit and bicycle boy. It is painful. <laughs> and two points I want to bring up. I'm, one, I'm glad that like electric vehicles are finally getting some style to them because I feel like when they first came out, like the first 10 years, it was just like they noticeably different than any other car and just like not appealing at all, like aesthetically appealing, I feel like. But uh, like I've looked around and yeah, they are a little bit more stylish now. And then another point, I feel like gas powered cars is going to be one of those things that like our kids look at as being like, wow, I can't believe that they drove around like these emissions producing vehicles because yeah. even when i'm going for a run if someone's like driving like an old core like one of like the old cars that have just like brutal emissions and they drive by and i just smell it i'm like wow mm -hmm. this is just so bad and i i mean you're in the city so maybe it's like masked a little bit or like maybe you smell it I don't no know. yeah it's it's contrast. bad <laughs> i'm like i'm like wow like things are just going to be so much cleaner the air is going to be so much cleaner when this happens. Yeah. And if you are interested in how emissions and fossil fuels can impact air quality, tune in on Monday. That was a great way to segue <laughs> that one, Dan. All on purpose. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, two more quick hits for you.
Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Go check them out. Go show Dan some love. Vala Alta. Welcome back to the planet today, everybody. Next up, modern farm vehicles heavier than dinosaurs can damage soil for decades, study finds, by Kristen Hemingway Janes of EcoWatch. So Nick and I talked in March about how important soils are for ecosystems to thrive and how delicate soils can be to industrial agriculture. And this report found that too much soil compaction can reduce plant growth decrease food availability, and increase flood risk by speeding up runoff and filling waterways quickly. The article points out how the tread from machines used for agriculture push us down on the earth to continuously compact it. And some of these machines weigh more than dinosaurs. It's wild. <laughs> yeah. When they move over the soil, it presses water and air out of the soil. It's another one of those processes that takes seconds to impact but can take decades to recover from. As machinery becomes heavier, the pressure put on soils becomes greater. So we're talking about machines that make harvesting crops easier, but degrade the soil faster than farming by hand or farming with smaller machines. And something that this kind of reminds me of is pesticide use, where it makes the plants grow larger, it makes the plants produce more fruit potentially, but it's less healthy. It's going to degrade the soil more. It's going to erode the soil so much that it's hard to plant new crops after you harvest those first ones. So, yeah, it's a, a short-term gain that really, really impacts us negatively in the long run. One of the other factors brought up in the article is the width of the tires, which have gotten wider to make sure the machines don't sink into the soil under their own weight. This also means that the soil surface hasn't changed much as machines have gotten larger, but soil deeper down has gotten more and more compacted. Modern farming machinery can cause permanent soil compaction underneath the first 7.87 inches or so, according to the conversation. This is beneath the level of tilling, which can lead to reduced levels of oxygen in the soil, as well as keeping roots from penetrating deeper. Since it's below where the farmers are working, it's going to be harder to notice the effects of the soil compaction to those farmers right away. The researchers estimated that 20% of the world's farmland has a high risk of productivity loss due to soil compression from modern farming machinery. Farms in North America and Europe face the biggest risk due to the prevalence of the biggest farm vehicles being used to till large-scale agricultural operations on soil with high levels of moisture. Yeah, this is something to me that just... You know, again, 
it makes sense when you really think about just how much weight is going on on those machines now yeah. and every single time they go over the fields that you're then going to go in and try to plant stuff in no definitely and i i was thinking about it too because when i was in school doing environmental engineering like a segment of that is groundwater and groundwater is used by a lot of farmers to irrigate their land and we were learning about how like mm-hmm. a lot of the aquifers are being drained and you have to dig deeper and deeper and so like when you're draining the water in the soil the area where that moisture was and that water is coming from is now turned into air and if you're gonna yeah continue to drive over it it's just going to compact more and more which uh is kind of like a double whammy with what the article was mentioning and then not only that it reduces the ability for future groundwater storage if that area is then closed up yeah and it makes it even harder for the aquifers to recharge yeah so you know it's it's making this year's harvest a little bit easier to grow and and you know bring the crops in yeah. but at the cost of the future and you know it's 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 very interesting because when you think of it that way sure farmers are going to generally care about their land but it's a lot harder to say I want to make sure that this land is good in a hundred years than it is to say, I want to make sure that I get a good crop yield this year so I could afford to put food on the table for my family. Yeah, very hard, very hard decision. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have the answer here yeah. other than maybe harvesting slower with smaller machinery yeah. is a, a good way to both get your crops in and not destroy your land for the future. That probably makes the most sense. <laughs> All right. Our last quick hit of the week is from Audubon.org. Elise DeFranco writes, Absent for more than a century, California condors soar above the redwoods again. Great story to send you on your way for Memorial Day weekend. The Yurok tribe and its partners have begun to release California condors back into Northern California. They're an endangered species, and conservationists hope to rebuild its range and revitalize the Yurok tribe's traditions as the bird and its population soar. They have been extinct in the wild since the 1980s, and after 14 years of work, they are once again flying above the Pacific Northwest in their native range. They used to live in great numbers between British Columbia and northern Mexico, but now roughly 300 birds are flying free. They have even been found in the area between Central California, Utah, Arizona, and Mexico, where the Yurok tribe says the birds have been absent from since 1892. The article says that the tribe endeavored to bring condors back not only for the good of the species, but as a part of a larger effort to restore the ecosystems and revitalize the cultural landscape of the ancestral Yurok homelands. Efforts to return condors to this part of the continent began in 2003, as the tribe began to work with bird conservation and restoring the lands below the trees the condors would fly above. The tribe worked to restore land damaged by commercial logging, renew salmon runs, and regain coastal prairie habitats through controlled burning. Another quote from the article I want to bring up is, In Yurok tradition, the tribe's relationship with condors stretches back to the beginning of time. Condor feathers adorn regalia worn for world renewal ceremonies, which also center the song of the condor, chosen by the creator as the most beautiful, the most powerful song of all of the animals. So it's an animal that's important to the ecosystem, but also to the people who live there. 
And this article reminded me that I also had a friend who's contributed to the Condor comeback. And uh, yeah, she was out in California for six to 12 months and would work on a reservation and they would find eggs in the uh, prairie land or wherever they would hatch them. And then they would make sure that they were protected and yeah, work to, to maintain the uh, area and restore the area. The population. Yeah, it was really cool. That is super cool. You, uh, you gotta get her on the show. I would yeah, love to yeah, talk to her about absolutely. that. That's super cool. I, I should, I don't know why I never thought about it, but I got it. I don't know this friend, <laughs> but it's going to be a great interview because that sounds like something I would geek out yeah, about. <laughs> yeah, no, she's got plenty more stories for you too. Awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it's always great to see an animal that was once extinct in the wild released back into the ecosystem. And now we just need to hope that the population increases. The Yurok tribe is going to continue releasing birds into the wild as they're ready. And hopefully those birds will reproduce naturally as well. And we get, you know, two sides of this solution propping this population back up to where it needs to be. Great things. Great things. All right. That'll do it for today's episode of TPT. On Monday, I'm going to be back for a Memorial Day mini-sode. Matt will be talking about the oil and gas industry's carbon bombs and how fossil fuels impact human health. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Janusa produces our show unless he's in Italy and then I do it, but he <laughs> always makes all of our music. Go check him out at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that's B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Dan Walsh, where can people keep up with you and the Vala Alta team? As always at valaalta.co and at Vala underscore Alta on Instagram and TikTok. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Thanks again to Dan Walsh for joining us today. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Cheers. Cheerio. Cheerio.